Hey everyone, welcome back to another podcast. Today, we are going to be uh, answering common questions about Christianity 4. Uh, last episode, we had Abyss the, Ra- Abyss the Rain uh, come in a few questions he had for us, and we're going to be going over those. Uh, I'm Riley, and this is Sawyer, and Sawyer will lead us off. Alright, so the first question that we had from Abyss the Rain was... What should we do when being forced into a corner and have to use self-defense? If you have to use self-defense and strike another, is it considered sin? Um, so surprisingly, this question is not as uncommon as one might think. Um, situations like this do happen in real life, and there are instances where people have to defend themselves against an attacker. As far as what the Bible has to say, I'm sorry to tell you that it doesn't necessarily give any explicit instructions instructions about defending oneself against an attacker. The closest thing I could find was in Ezekiel 22, 2-3. It says, If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. These verses give the closest thing to guidelines for self-defense that, you can, that I was able to find in the Bible. Uh, basically, they say that if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you don't know if they're there to rob you or kill you and you attack that thief and say you kill him to protect yourself or your family, then his blood will not be on your hands. But if the sun is risen and you know that the thief is unarmed and doesn't intend to kill you, then it would be sinful to kill him or attack him or anything like that. Uh, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that give examples of self-defense. Um, one I could find was in Genesis 14, 13 through 16. Abraham um, rescues Lot and he uses force. Um, Luke twenty two thirty six says, um, this is Jesus talking, it says, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Jesus says that if you don't, he's talking, and he says, If you don't have a sword, sell your garment and go buy one. What purpose does a sword have, but what purpose does a sword serve but to defend oneself? Honestly, in my opinion, this is probably the strongest biblical evidence for self-defense being okay, in my opinion, because Jesus himself appears to be condoning it by saying, go buy a sword. Um, I believe that self-defense is biblical, but that limitations obviously apply. Obviously, self-defense doesn't apply to all situations or any situations that have happened in the past. Passages such as Proverbs 25, Romans 12, make it clear that vengeance is wrong and that we should never take law into our own hands for an offense that occurred in the past. Long story short, as Christians, I believe that biblically using self-defense is not sinful or wrong under the correct circumstances, such as if your life or the lives of your loved ones are in immediate danger. Um, an example of this that I may not put be say you're asleep in your house and you hear a noise and you realize it's an intruder if you were to protect yourself or your family by killing the intruder that would not be sinful because you'd only be using force for the sake of protecting you or your loved ones and have no way of knowing if the intruder just intends to steal something or to do you or your family harm however say that it's broad daylight and the intruder is unarmed and falls to the ground and asks you not to hurt him or attempts to flee then it will certainly be sinful to kill that intruder because he posed no threat to you or your family um, the specific example given is whether or not it would be wrong to strike another when backed into a corner. In light of what we've just seen, I would definitely say that used under the correct circumstances, emphasis on correct circumstances, self-defense is not sinful or wrong. Um, so I'd also just say that lethal force obviously should be a last resort, never a first response. Yeah, uh, off of what you said, uh, proper use of self-defense comes with wisdom and over uh, yeah. more situation-by-situation basis. Uh, first of all, when you are defending yourself, if you, uh, can help it, do not do any lethal blows. Just try to subdue them if they are trying to attack you, to kill you, or to harm you in any way. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think you did, you did Luke twenty two thirty six, 
but yeah. I don't think you did Luke 22, 49-51, which uh, is where Peter uh, chops off the guy's ear when they came to get Jesus, and uh, Jesus put it back on it. The verses are uh, Luke 22, 49-51. When the A which were about him saw what, what saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite them? Shall we smite with the sword? And one of the smote one of them smote the servant with the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye this far, and he touched his ear and healed him. So there are uses for self defense, but it is situation by situation basically in that situation it was wrong because Peter uh Jesus had told all his disciples uh that he had to do this and that he had to go and die on the cross and to let them take him. And so that's why that was wrong there, but it's a more situation by situation basis. Yeah. Also, uh, do not retaliate out of anger. So, like, if someone insults you or, like, slaps you, whatever, do not uh, retaliate in any way uh, to inspire more fighting or whatever. Uh, yeah. I think, is that the first number? Uh, I know my pastor went over this uh, when we were doing the research uh, for it. Matthew five thirty-eight to 39. You have heard that uh, it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that if ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. So if someone throws an insult at you, do not retaliate with another insult, because that's only going to inspire more anger and fighting and whatever. But, uh, or if they hit you out of anger, do not retaliate because they are not trying to kill you and they are blinded by their anger and whatnot. So, yeah. And I mean, it's like I said, um, it's only under the proper circumstances is it appropriate to use self defense. Obviously, if there's a way to resolve the circumstance or the situation without having to harm anybody, that should be the first course of action. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not sinful to defend yourself as uh as long as they are not uh, it's not a sin to defend yourself. Yeah, and, like, and, like you said. yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it's like you said. If someone insults you, that doesn't give you a right to go punch them in the face. Yeah, but if someone is a legitimate threat to you or your family and they're going to try to kill you, then you do have the right and the ability to defend yourself. Yeah. But only, that's probably most likely only if you are in immediate danger, you or your family. Yeah. Uh, the next question is, how can someone befriend a unsaved sinner if we are to make good friends who will help us through tribulations? Uh, so first off, when we make friends with sinners, we need to first off be cautious in the relationships with them. Uh, because when you friend befriend an unsaved person, you who the people you hang out with tend to have influence on you and tend to uh change how you act and whatnot because my depending on who my current uh friends are i notice how i act is slightly different from what i normally am and whatnot and so you've got to be cautious in that area that you do not uh fall into their habits or fall into unrighteous things yeah uh Friendship, but being friends with an unsafe person also makes it easier to lead them to God. Because when you don't know the person, 
I, I know for me, I struggle to bring them to God because I don't know a thing about them. I know, like, how to bring people to God, but I can't, like, really relate to them too much because I don't know who they are and what they like, whatever, and uh, what they've been through and whatnot. But, like, if I am friends with the person, I find it easier to bring them to God because I know somewhat who they are. Uh, we know each other a bit other than uh, God, and so I might be able to bring the relationship to God, uh, him through the through the relationship to God. Yeah. Sorry, I'm dying. Um, I've been sick the past few days. Yeah. And so, actually, when I was looking at this, surprisingly, Christians actually do seem to disagree on the subject quite a bit. One side, actually, there actually is people that say that Christians should never be friends with unbelievers. And then the other side saying that it's perfectly fine to be friends with the unsafe sinners. Um, mm -hmm. However, I think that I would fall not necessarily in the middle, probably more towards the second side. I certainly don't think that it's wrong to have unsafe friends. That is not something that is wrong, obviously. Um, but I would suggest you keep in your mind that friends, like you said, they do influence you and that you do have to be careful. Uh, Proverbs 13.20 says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Um, and basically what it's saying there is if you're friends with wise people, they will help you to be wise. But if you're friends with fools, they're not going to help you to be wise. They're going to the, the, A companion of fools should be destroyed. Someone once says, Blessed is the man that walketh, in the, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Um, at face value, these verses do seem to say that you should at least be careful about the friends you choose. Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold a man, gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified for children. Luke 7.34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. From the same verse, Behold a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Both of these verses are talking about Jesus, and both of them point out the same fact. Jesus Christ himself was not afraid of people knowing that he was friends with sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that he approved of their actions. That doesn't mean he was okay with their sin or that he took part with but simply that he was able to be friends with sinners and to talk to them and stuff like that. He didn't allow them to influence him. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Um, it teaches that if you have good godly friends, they will lift you up and strengthen your faith. So the takeaway here is kind of simple. Having unsafe friends is certainly all right. <clears throat> my advice would be to my advice would be be very very careful about the influence you allow them to have on you. Uh, when you're friends with an unsafe person, your goal should obviously be to lead them to Christ. That is our as Christians, that is our goal is to lead as many people to Christ as we can. Um, but far too often, it ends up going the other way with the unsafe person leading the Christian into sin. Yeah. So. Uh... If you're I know, uh, ask, uh, Dr. Cliff, uh, I'll throw his YouTube channel in the description, because he, I love watching his videos and whatnot, um, he had a few people come up and ask him about being unsafe, uh, being friends with a person who is a sinner, who might be racist or a pedophile or whatever. The thing is with being, uh, friends with an unsafe person, love the person, but not the sin. Exactly. Hate, uh, hate the sin, but not the person. Yeah. Because you want to influence some good aspects onto them. And I don't, I say, even if you uh, don't really get along with them, still be friendly to them because that will help them come to God. Yeah. The Bible tells us Christians to show love to everyone. It doesn't say just to show love and be friends with the Christians. Obviously, if you're going to be showing love to an unsaved mm -hmm. world, you have to have contact with the unsaved world. But just because you, like you said, you have to love the sinners but you cannot love their sin. 
um, let's see, where was I? And so I would just say, um, if your friend is an unsaved individual, to use just use discernment. If they start leading you away from Christ and you find yourself becoming less and less like Christ and more and more like the world, and you're falling into sin more and more often because of that friendship, I'd recommend at least limiting it in some way or even just ending it altogether. Um, maybe not like completely cut off contact and I'm talking again because you still do need to show them Christ's love, but be very, very careful about what kind of influence they have in your life. I would also probably say be careful about becoming like really close friends with an unsaved individual because the closer you are to someone, it's just a fact the closer you are to someone, the more influence they'll have over your life and the more they will influence the way you talk and what you do and how you live. And so I'd be just, my recommendation would just be to be careful and have discernment and that you definitely can have unsafe friends. You just need to also have the discernment to be able to tell like whether or not they're leading you away from God and what you should be doing. Yeah. Uh, I found this site that had like three rules with uh, being friends with the unsafe person. The first one being, uh, being a friend with sinners does not in any way mean that we should justify, condone, or participate in any evil practices. Exactly. Uh, two, it follows that our association with sinners should be with those who are willing to consider the gospel, listen to the teaching of truth, and honestly consider your their need to reform. That doesn't mean that we should, if someone just flat out won't take any God or any Christianity stuff, whatever, that we should just like give up on them and uh, not be friends with them anymore. Still be friends with them, but just, I, I really don't know what that, but like, you still want to try to bring them to God, even if they're denying yeah. it, like, and everything, whatnot. Yeah, uh, I mean, go ahead. No matter how many times someone denies God, they can still come to God. Yeah. And ultimately, even if someone tells you they're never going to get saved, they still may someday get saved. So, obviously, I would definitely recommend just don't give up. Yeah. Uh, number three, uh, furthermore, it follows that we should limit our association with sinners in, to places and circumstances that do not promote or encourage the sin, uh, their sin, avoiding places and circumstances of moral disrepute. I can't say that word. Uh, where people gather to commit immorality. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, especially with that first point, I think that really fits with what like Jesus did, was that he was friends with them, but that doesn't mean that God, Jesus was saying that what they did was okay. Yeah. Jesus would be friends with sinners, but Jesus wasn't telling them that their sin was okay, and in associating himself with sinners, and he was being friends with them, with the publicans and sinners, he wasn't saying that the sin they practiced was okay. And that is something you need to be able to do. That's all I had for that question. So. Same. So the third question, wait, is it me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So the third question I had, he um, asked was, how can we separate the temptations from the wicked and try and turn the temptation into something that glorify God? So I wasn't entirely sure what the first half of that question was. So I kind of just focused on the second half. Um, um, how can we turn temptation into something that glorify God? A passage that might help a little bit is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And then James 1, 2-3 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. So basically, here's what I think your answer is. Turning a temptation from that glorify God is simply overcoming the temptation and not falling into the sin that the temptation is trying to lead you to. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that verse, 
it tells you that there's no temptation that you'll face that God doesn't also give you a way to overcome. It says that no temptation hath taken you without which is as common to man. And, um, but we'll, sorry, um, you'll not be tempted above that which we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape it. You may be able to bear it. And so no matter what the temptation is, God gives us a way to escape that temptation. Um, and not only if you overcome your temptation, I think that's probably the best way to turn temptation to something that can glorify God. But the passage in James also teaches us that um, not falling into sin will not only bring more glory to God, but it will actually strengthen your faith and help you to have more patience so that next time you come across temptation, you'll be a little bit stronger and you'll be a little bit more able to overcome. Yeah. Uh, I had a little paragraph on uh, how to overcome temptation. Uh, according to the Bible, your first step to overcome temptation is to turn to him into repentance and faith. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only one that can make you right before God, and He died in your place to satisfy the wrath of God and against your sin, and He rose for the dead to prove the debt was paid. So, sort of the same lines of salvation kind of thing. Uh, I also had. Do you do Romans six seventeen and eighteen? Okay. Uh, but God, but God be thanked that ye were servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart of that form of the doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free and from sin, ye may become ye became the servants of righteousness. So a good thing to do is when you are feeling tempted to uh like to do the sin that you're struggling with or uh tempted to with your thoughts or whatever, your eyes, whatever, is go to the Bible. If you just Whenever you feel that, just open up your Bible, or even if you don't have your Bible with you, just open up a your Bible app on phone or look it up on Google, or whatever, and just read a few verses or whatever. That it helps with overcoming temptation. Yeah, you can even like if you look up on uh, Google or whatever, uh, with the sin that you're struggling with, verses about that sin that'll help even further. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The Bible is the ultimate authority. And if you are struggling with the sin and you feel tempted to do it, I agree. You need to just go to the Bible. I mean, you can, there's like 14 million Bible apps you can get on your phone. So there's certainly yeah. no shortage. Uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, sometimes temptation is also a test uh, from God. And what a test is, is a situation that God sends to or allows in your life with the intention of revealing our loyalties, motivations, characters. Uh, characters and commitments to him and helping to purify strengthen or and mature us if successfully passed a test also glorifies god so when you overcome a certain sin that you're struggling with or a just sin that you come up with that glorifies god and whatnot yeah <clears throat> all right uh when we are mad at god when we are mad at God and say some things we should, we know we shouldn't, does God forgive us? Uh, yes, for, but not only that, he will forgive us if we do mean what we say. There is no uh, sin that Christ's atonement uh, is insufficient to forgive. First uh, John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, 
Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will they forgive you and your trespasses. So uh, I also kind of use that for uh, when you do say things to God and whatnot, he will forgive you, even if you mean them. But one thing to watch out for is if you don't forgive people for things that they do to you, why should God forgive you? Because, uh, I mean, he will already forgive you, but uh, being Christians, we should forgive no matter what the situation is and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't have much. Uh, mainly, I think the answer to this question is um, Matthew twelve thirty one says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Simply put, this verse answers the question in its entirety. It says, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, like you said, Riley, even if you mean what you say and you say something you know you shouldn't and you do whatever sin it is, you fill in the blank, lying, whatever, God will forgive you. We have that promise in the Bible that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. And no matter what you do, no matter if you mean it or not, God will forgive you. Yeah, uh, I know I didn't have it written down, but the uh, tale of the debtors... That Jesus, I think, is that one of the ones that he does in his uh, speech on the mount or whatever? The preaching on the mount? I, I can't remember, but uh, yeah, if you look into the story of the two debtors with the king or whatever, uh, that is a good story for that um, question. I just thought the one, with the one guy who got forgiven a ton? Yeah, the one who got forgiven a ton and one forgive the one who owed him. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember if that was on his preaching on the mount or whatever. I don't think so. I don't know, though. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, that's all I had for that question, though. All right, so for the fifth question, why was it so hard for God's chosen people to see Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Honestly, I'm not sure I can answer this question any more than to say that the Israelites rejected Jesus for the same reason that people still reject him today. Uh, it's not that they couldn't believe, but that they wouldn't. Um, another factor that might have played into this is the corrupt religious leadership of that day. Um, they cared only for the rituals that they held to and not for the truth. And so they would have learned of the truth of Jesus Christ. They didn't even care enough to drink about it because it was a very um, uh, ritualistic. Yeah. Uh, I went off the basis of... I. Because I dug around, I couldn't find too much of uh, much of anything. But I did dug, dig around, and one of the most common reasons why people uh, don't believe in God or don't believe that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is because they uh, don't they they don't ask others to help them understand, or they have taken verses out of context. For example, uh, when Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, or, uh, and Jesus said unto them, why callest thou me good? There is none good, but one, that is God. Which, if you took that literal, he, uh, or if you, not literal, but some people might take that, uh, as him saying that he's not God there in that verse, Mark ten eighteen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of people reject Christianity because they have a false view of what a verse or a passage says, and so they take it out of context 
And then sometimes even if you try to tell them what the context says, they still won't listen to you because that's what they've, that's what they believed for so long. Yeah. Uh, another big verse that there, I found it. Uh, ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto the, you. If ye love me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the father for my father is greater than I, which some people say that, uh, that makes Jesus a prophet because he's saying that God is greater than him. Therefore they can't be one. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of harm has come from people misinterpreting the Bible and taking verses out of context. Yeah. There, but there are very clear verses where Jesus does say that he is God. Uh, yeah, definitely. Revelation twenty two thirteen, John 14, 6, uh, and John eight fifty eight, And John eight fifty eight is a, if you uh, look into that one, that one's a great one to use. Yeah. But that's all I have for that. Same. Uh, gluttony. What are some ways to stop gluttony? What exactly is gluttony in context? So gluttony is defined as the excess of eating and drinking. Although eating and drinking for pleasure is not seen as sinful, eating and drinking uh, beyond reason is a sin. Drunkenness, which is caused by excessive consumption of intoxicating beverages, is considered a type of gluttony. Uh, there are, I looked and there's like probably over 50 to 100 verses about uh, not getting drunk or drunkenness in general. Uh, Proverbs twenty three twenty says, "Be not among wine bibbers, among notice eaters of flesh." I don't know if I wrote that right, but uh, yeah. And then uh, with gluttony, that's a hard question to answer using the Bible. But I like to use First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty as my base for answering that. Uh, what know ye not uh, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's kind of what I use to uh, for my beliefs of like staying in shape and whatnot. But yeah. <clears throat> So what I had written down for what gluttony is, is um, glutton basically, basically, obviously I'm not going to go super complicated, is the overindulgence of food, drink, or something else of that nature, and allowing that overindulgence to control you. Uh, as far as how to stop it, I think a verse that might help is 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Um, the key thing I wanted to notice in this passage is the phrase, I will not be brought under the power of any. Um, we are, we are as Christians, we are called to have self-control. We aren't supposed to allow things such as a love for food or anything else for that matter to control us or to control our lives. Obviously, food is something that God gave us. But the key to not committing gluttony is just to not let that food, that love for food or anything else that God gave us to control you. 